Thank you, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Jonathan. I am honored to be here at New Life Midtown. Thank you so much uh, for having me. As Jonathan just said, my title officially is Associate Lead Pastor, which is kind of like assistant to the regional manager uh, for Pastor Glenn at downtown. Sarah and I have been married for almost 17 years. We have three daughters, uh, Cora, Lila, and Avi, and a pandemic puppy. Uh, all, all questions about the dog may be directed to my wife um, and not to me. Uh, as Jason and I, or as Jonathan said, I know some of you from New Life Downtown. I know some of you from Turning Point or Stars Theater Company. Some of you from the family meeting that we had back here several uh, months ago now. I've actually known Pastor Jade and Pastor Christie since college. Uh, you've heard that story several times. Now you're like, how many people came from Tulsa to Colorado Springs around that time? And it's basically every fifth person in Colorado Springs, I think, that, that came. Uh, there was actually a season where Pastor Jade, Pastor Glenn, and I lived on the same floor together at ORU. Uh, and it was just for a very brief time until Jade convinced me to become a chaplain, uh, which is one of the leadership roles on another floor. I was very, very happy on the floor that I was on. Jade was there. Glenn was there. All of these other friends were there. I was a sophomore. I think Jade was a senior at the time. And Jade became aware of these leadership needs around campus. And so Jade began coming by my dorm room and quoting Old Testament prophets to me about, you know, there is a need and the Lord is searching for someone to respond to the call. Whom shall I send, Jason? Uh, so I think I may be the first missionary that Jade ever recruited into, uh, into service. Uh, but I'm so grateful for this church, grateful for your long, long faithfulness to the Lord, your long, long faithfulness to uh, this city, and thankful for all that you've already brought to the New Life family. I, I love that you have the desire to allow your roots to run really deep in the history and practices and traditions of the church, while at the same time that you passionately love the Spirit of God. Uh, and can hold those things together. And I love your fervor for missions and for outreach. Uh, we've already, in, at New Life as a whole, benefited from that, of realizing that the presence of New Life Midtown is sparking things inside of all of our congregations. And so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we're continuing our series today through the book of Galatians, a series that we're calling The Revolutionary Gospel, where we are looking at how the life death, resurrection, ascension, and eventual return of Jesus actually changes everything, how it turns everything upside down and inside out. And particularly in the, in the book of Galatians, how the gospel gets worked out in the life of the church, how in the church, the spirit of God in the name of Jesus is uniting Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female into a new kind of community that serves as a witness to the world that Jesus Christ is king and that the world is actually being claimed by him. Last week, Pastor Andrew from New Life East was here and he was talking in the middle of Galatians that Paul is saying that one of the things that distinctively marks this new community, that marks the children of God who are found in Christ Jesus, is a spiritual freedom. 
that there is a freedom to the people of God, that the Spirit has set us free. Today, I wanna continue that conversation. I'm gonna be picking up about halfway through Galatians chapter five, beginning in verse 13. If you have Bibles, you can turn there, or you can follow along on the screens. And what I want us to explore today is what is it that the gospel frees us from? What is it the Spirit frees us from? And what does the Spirit, what does the gospel free us for? What does the gospel free us from? And what does the gospel free us for? Galatians chapter five, verse 13 says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, the entire Old Testament is fulfilled by keeping this one commandment want to summarize it all together, it all gets connected to the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, don't do that. Instead, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you're not to do whatever it is that you want. Paul here is talking about a conflict. He's talking about a power struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And he's saying that what the flesh wants, what the flesh desires is opposed to or stands in contrast or opposite to what the spirit wants or what the spirit desires. And he's talking about this not as if it's an external struggle, but an internal one, an internal struggle. And it's something that's happening inside of us. And we know from Paul's letter here that the spirit he's talking about is the Holy Spirit living inside of us as the people of God. But there's a lot of debate about what does he mean by flesh? It's kind of a weird term, right? It's not something that we just talk about all the time, especially outside of church. Like inside church, sometimes we use that word a lot. It's like, oh, it's my flesh, brother. You're like, "Uh, okay, like your thumb? Like what, what what are we talking about here? Where are we going? There's some in the church that think that when Paul's talking about flesh, he's talking about our physical bodies, that this is what he's talking about. This is really kind of an an input into the church of Greek thought. In the Greek worldview, everything that's material is bad. That the physical body is a prison for our our immaterial soul. And it's been smuggled into some Christian traditions that tell us that really what the, the thing is that we battle against is our physicality. There are some traditions Uh, that goes so far as to severely harm the body in the name of Jesus. As if this body is somehow contrary to the Christian story. But it's actually that move that's contrary. Our bodies were created good. We have bodies in the garden. Our bodies are created good. And we believe the story ends actually with our bodies being made new that our bodies will be resurrected. That's what we say in the creed, that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And we know throughout the scriptures that our bodies can actually be used for good or for evil. That there's ways in which we can worship God with our bodies. There's ways that we can serve God with our body. There's certain things about our body that are beautiful and wonderful. We can also use them to do great evil and do great harm. 
So we know, though, that it can't fully be this because our bodies sit in this space. They were created good. They're going to be resurrected. But we certainly know in the middle of that story that our bodies are mortal, that they're vulnerable, that they're weak, that they fail us. We know that sometimes our bodies can be clumsy and awkward. I can't turn a corner in a house without running into the wall. I don't know why. Like there's plenty of hallway space, but it just seems my flesh is against me. <laughs> I can't make that corner. So other people are just like, well, maybe it's not the physical body. Maybe it's our passions. Maybe it's something about us, our, our, maybe our emotions or our passions. This actually kind of enters the church post the enlightenment where it says that everything that's contrary to logic and to reason must be contrary to God, <laughs> right? But our desires, our emotions are God-given as well. Right. We were not made to be machines, sort of scientific robots walking around and calculating what to do in every single moment. Our passions are actually morally neutral. They can be directed toward good or toward evil. They can be shaped and directed by things that we might call worldly or things that we might call godly. So what's he talking about? Well, in the passage, what we clearly see is that he says that the flesh is opposed to the spirit. And maybe more clearly, the flesh is that which is opposite of service, that which is opposite of love. This is why some translations, depending upon what you're reading, will actually translate the flesh as selfish desires. It's that thing inside of us that turns our bodies and our passions inward, that thing that exploits our finiteness and our fallenness, the thing that takes advantage of our human limits and our susceptibility to sin. It's that which turns or directs our bodies and our passions towards self-gratification. And it's that is what the spirit is freeing us from. The spirit frees us from the flesh for service, frees us from that tendency to just look after and take care of ourselves to actually being concerned about other people. It frees us from selfishness for the sake of self-sacrificial, self-giving love. This actually runs contrary to all of our notions of what freedom is. All of our notions in our culture say that what we need is we need to be freed from something external so that we can just do whatever we feel like doing internally that we can be me and do whatever we like and fulfill all of our desires. That what we need is to be fully freed from all restraints and all resistance and everything that might tell us that we can't do that or we shouldn't do that or don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me who I am. Don't put me in a box. Don't try to shape me or mold me in any kind of way because I just need to be free to be me. Be set free for an expressive sort of individualism. And yet Paul is saying, no, 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 there's something going on inside of us that causes our lives to be bent internally. And that move towards selfishness actually destroys us. It doesn't set us free. According to Paul, he says, this is actually where that leads. Galatians 5, 19, the acts of the flesh, well, they're obvious, <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, 
dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, things like that. It's like just this and everything else that you can kind of fill in from there. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says these are the acts of the flesh. These are the works of the flesh. In other words, this is how the flesh works itself out in our life. That if we say we follow that path, how it's going to manifest is in actions or behaviors that are clearly sin. And those things, if we look at them really, really closely, those things are not personal or private or harmless. Sin is actually always social. It's always relational. It always involves and impacts not just us, but others. It actually sort of impacts those that we're connected with. He begins here and he uses three general terms to cover the whole range of sexual sin. And then he uses two general terms to talk about pagan worship, about idolatry and witchcraft, which seem like, well, that's kind of a private or personal thing. But no, what we know about all of those kind of practices is they're not isolated sort of things, but they actually shape an ethic. They shape a worldview. They shape a way that we go about living in the world. And then he goes and he names eight very specific acts. Hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And then he tops it off with two general terms about drunkenness and wild parties. What's really interesting to me up the list is that Paul doesn't use summary terms in the center. He uses summary terms on the edges. But in the center he uses eight very specific terms, eight behaviors. Hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. It's like, why does he spend so much time saying those words over and over again, where it seems like, don't, aren't those all kind of saying the same thing in some way? I think he's saying this because of the most prevalent problems in the church in Galatia. If it was Corinth, he might have used a whole lot more other terms. <gasps> Right? But in Galatia, this is what's going on. That in the community, this is the way that they're treating each other. This is why earlier in the letter, he tells them to love one another because they're not loving one another. Instead, they're doing all of these things. And he says specifically, he says in verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I think this imagery actually helps us to imagine the impact of the flesh on community. That what the flesh does is the flesh feeds on others. That's what the flesh does, is it feeds on other people. It cannibalizes our community. And in the process, it dehumanizes us. That's what the flesh does. And we can see it all around us. So much has been said about the last two years and the divisiveness that we see in our culture. And it looks like Galatians. It looks like those eight terms in the middle. Turn on any news program, turn on any social media feed, turn on any of those things, and this is what we are doing to one another. But it's not just something that happens out there. It's not just a problem for them, right? The scriptures are always an invitation for us not to say like, well, you know who does that? 
the scriptures are an invitation for us to say, okay, God, where am I in this? Where are we in this? How are we doing this? How has my saying yes to the flesh actually impacted my friends? How has it impacted my family? How has it impacted my spouse? How has it impacted my children? How has it impacted my roommate? How has it impacted my coworkers? How has it impacted my city? How has it impacted my church? See, Paul is wanting the Galatians to guard against all these kinds of actions and all these kinds of attitudes because what they will do is they will divide the church. And in dividing the church, it will take away the church's ministry in the world, which is to witness to a different way to be human. While everybody else is acting this way, the church is called to act in a different way. So he goes on, he says, so don't live that way instead. He says, but the fruits of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love. It's joy, it's peace, it's patience or forbearance, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness and self-control. And against those things, there is no law. There's no law against living in those kinds of ways. What's really interesting here is that Paul switches from talking about plural works to singular fruit. It was the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the spirit. So the flesh works itself out in all kinds of ways. But the Spirit of God produces a singular, inseparable collection of behaviors inside the people of God. You can be enraged without being drunk. You can be jealous without engaging in witchcraft. But you can't be loving without also being kind and gentle. You can't be, you can't be patient without also being faithful and having self-control things are inseparable. Which is also interesting is here is he switches metaphors. Paul does this a lot. But he's here he switches metaphors from works to fruit. Why would he switch from talking about works of the flesh to fruit of the spirit? Why not works of the spirit? Why switch here? I think it's to draw our attention to that idea again, whereas the flesh feeds on others, the spirit feeds others. The spirit feeds others through us. It nourishes community. And in the process, it humanizes us. Think about all of those characteristics. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. What do those things do for our coworkers? What do those things do for our family? What do those things do for our spouses? What do those things do for our children? What do they do for our friends? What do they do for our roommates? What do they do for our neighbors? What do they do for our city? What do they do for our church? They enrich it, they nourish it, they cause life to come about. See friends, the fruit of the spirit is not for us. In the same way, the gifts of the spirit are not for us. We benefit from them certainly, but we are secondary beneficiaries. Others are the primary beneficiary of the Spirit's work inside of us. And we are the primary beneficiaries of the Spirit's work in and through them. This is actually why in-person gatherings of the church really matter. It's one of the many reasons. But our presence here is not primarily for the benefit of us. 
our presence here is actually primarily for the other people that are around us. It's that through us and through our presence, the spirit of God might work in us to feed others, to enrich others. What if when we're coming to gatherings like this, whether it's church gatherings on Sunday or home gatherings or midweek gatherings, what if instead of asking ourselves the question we normally do, it's like we're coming in, it's like, okay, God, what do you have for me today? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question. It's like, God, what are you wanting to say to me? What am I going to get out of this? I get all those questions. But what if we also asked, or maybe first asked, Spirit of God, how do you want to work through me today? Amen. Spirit of God, who are you sending me to today? Spirit of God, what have you done inside of me? What have you deposited inside of me that actually is for somebody else? And what if we came into the room with sort of a holy suspicion and you know, looking around and saying, oh, who, who can I love today? Who can I bring joy to today? Who can I show God's faithfulness to today? Who needs me to be controlled today because of something else going on inside of their life today? Who is it that I can demonstrate an uncommon patience with today as a way of putting on display what Jesus is like? This is what Paul's talking about is a freeing us from the flesh for the sake of service, for the sake of others. But of course, the question we always ask is like, well, how does that happen? <laughs> how, how is it that it actually takes part inside of us? How does the spirit free us from the flesh for service? Some of us, I think the way that we kind of think about this is that we think it's just the spontaneous sort of move of the spirit. That at some point in our lives, things will just happen. But it's, it's just going to be one day I'm going to wake up and the flesh is gone and the spirit is here and it has just happened. And what happens in the middle of that is, is we actually begin to think something that's really common in our culture. In our culture, we believe that if something is not spontaneous or natural or organic, if it takes work or effort or energy, if it takes any of those things, then it's not authentic. Right? Guys, if that's the definition of authentic then the works of the flesh are a much better fit than the fruit of the spirit, right? I don't have to work to be angry. <laughs> I'm an Enneagram one for those of you that are Enneagram people. That means I'm like the Incredible Hulk. I'm always angry. It's like somewhere inside of there. But Christ-like character and Christian community don't just happen. They take time. They take effort. They take intentionality. They're only organic, like organic gardening is, is organic, right? An organic garden is not something you just leave alone and just like see what happens. Like you just sort of let it go wild and wait and see. If you do that, you will have nothing to eat, nothing to feed others. An organic garden must be carefully tended. It takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of care, a lot of showing up. And Paul captures this in the next verse, verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, Paul says the flesh must be crucified and the fruit must be cultivated. The flesh must be crucified and fruit must be cultivated. According to Paul, 
this happens by and with the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we can do by ourselves, and it's not by our effort alone. It's the Spirit of God that produces the fruit of the Spirit in us. But like a garden, it doesn't just happen. We have to participate. There's a role that we play. He says it this way in 5.16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or verse 25, so we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. He uses this kind of language, walk, live, step with the Spirit. I think what Paul is saying is that our task is to align ourselves with the life of the Spirit and follow his lead. To have an understanding of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit is about, what the fruit of the Spirit is, what the gifts of the Spirit are, to see those things and to see that they're a path laid out before us and now we're supposed to walk along that path. I think it's sort of like getting a tan. <laughs> Hang with me here. At least what I've been told about getting a tan. I'm a Norwegian, so all I do is burn and peel. So, but the idea of a tan, as elusive to me as it is, is I think helpful. You can't get a tan by just like thinking, I'm going to get a tan. You can't get a tan just by going, and like causing more, what's the, the chemical, like the, melaton, is it melatonin? Is that what it is? Like, you can't just, serotonin, some tonin. Like, it's, it's not just like, and we grit our way through it. You can't get a tan inside or in the shade. To get a tan, you have to sort of put yourself in the sun and let the sun do its work. Right? The same is it works with the Spirit. We put ourselves in the path of the Spirit and let the Spirit then do His work in us. We find every way possible to sort of get out of the shade into the sun and then we say, okay, Holy Spirit of God, do your work on me. This is actually what Christian practices are for. Christian practices and disciplines are actually ways of just getting us into the path of the Spirit. There are ways of just sort of like jumping into the river and then letting the Spirit do His work. There are things of saying like, oh, I can't get wet by standing on the side over here. I actually have to jump in. Well, how do I jump in? By all of these practices that we do all the time. They're not the thing that changes us. They're the things that just put us in the path of the Spirit. How is it the Spirit makes us grateful? As we start just practicing small acts of thanksgiving over a long period of time. You just stop and say, okay, the path of the Spirit is gratitude, it's gratefulness, it's generosity. It's okay, all right, I'm just gonna kind of jump into this. Lord, thank you for this. And what happens over time is that that stuff starts to come out of us naturally. How do I become more generous? It's not sort of just waiting around for my heart to change. <laughs> and it's not just through like, you know what, I'm gonna prove my generosity, now I'm gonna give one big gift and that's it, I'm done. Like suddenly I'm generous. You know, we practice little things over a long period of time. That's what tithing and offering is all about. It's like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna continue to do this. And over a long period of time, suddenly we find ourselves being generous with people. How do we become faithful? By keeping small promises over a long period of time, continuing to jump in the river. How do we learn self-control? By things like fasting, saying no to little things. They might actually be able to say no to more important things. 
How do we become more joyful people? By practicing feasting. <laughs> the other side of that, by saying yes to good things. How do we become patient? By waiting in silence and in prayer. How do we become more loving? By practicing serving. <laughs> by just showing up and saying, okay, I don't really like people very much. I don't really love people at all. <laughs> but can I stand at the front door and welcome people? <laughs> And over time, like, oh, actually, these people aren't so bad. <laughs> actually, I think I might kind of like them. Maybe not a whole lot, but a little. Why? Actually, they're kind of nice to me. Maybe something's changing in my heart. Oh, wait a minute. So-and-so wasn't here today. I wonder if they're okay. I should pray for them. Maybe I should call them. Suddenly, something starts to change inside of us. That's how the Spirit does His work. That's how He sets us free from the flesh so that we can serve others in love. And maybe one of the most common ways that we jump into the river is at the table. This is where the Spirit constantly leads us. The Spirit constantly leads us to Jesus. The Spirit is constantly leading us to this place. Why does He lead us to the table all the time? Why here? So the table is one of those little practices that we do. That we say, like, how do I become a more forgiving person? How do I become a more gentle person? Oh, I behold the forgiveness of Jesus. Oh, I partake of the gentleness of Christ. Oh, I keep doing this over and over again over a long period of time and then suddenly find that the Spirit of God has been at work this whole time. Most weeks, I'm completely unaware of it. Most weeks, it's not an overwhelming feeling, but something subterranean that the Spirit is doing, shaping us. This is why the church throughout generations has come to the table and begun with a prayer of confession. Why confession? Because we learn to tell the truth about ourselves. We learn to tell the truth about God and about others. And we learn to ask for help. We learn to pray. It's a little thing. And then all of a sudden we find that the sort of weekly course correction of repentance gets inside of us. And then suddenly we're in the middle of something at work and like, wait a minute. That's, that's, not the, that's not the Jesus way of doing things. And wait, how did I come to know that? Oh, the Spirit of God was at work. And so let's pray prayer of confession this morning as we come to the table. Most merciful God, we confess that we have failed to be an obedient church. And we have not loved you and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. But we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And so for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, would you have mercy on us? Would you teach us and show us what mercy is? And would you forgive us? Would you teach us and show us what forgiveness is? That we might be changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. That we might learn to delight in your will, to walk in your ways, to give glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Friends, hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the name of Jesus Christ...
we are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, we have been set free. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has been deposited in each one of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work, setting us free, transforming us into the image and likeness of Jesus, causing the fruit of the Spirit to become manifest in our lives that others may taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a sign that we've been forgiven and set free and made new creations. Would you stand this morning? And would you go ahead and exit to your left and come forward and grab the elements? Then you can return to your seats. Exit on the left, return on the right. And then when you get back, you can begin that five-minute process of opening that plastic cellophane. Once again, we rehearse the story that on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ, he took bread. And when he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the body of Christ given for us. Take and eat. same way after supper he took the cup of wine and when he given thanks he gave to them he said drink of this all of you this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins so whenever you drink it do so in remembrance of me this is the blood of Christ shed for you Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son. this place, continue to throw yourself in every way into the path of the Spirit of God. And may the Spirit of God produce fruit inside of you that He might through you feed others and bring them into life-giving relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thank you for letting me be here with you all.